Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this uh, time this morning that you have provided for us and this place that we could come and gather and worship you in song, which we've done, Lord, and now we worship you in study of your word and through our prayer, Lord. I pray that this time would be a blessing to you, and Lord, that you've already begun to prepare our hearts to hear what it is that you've already uh, spoken and prepared for this morning. So I thank you, Lord. I pray that you would take these words of mine and, and do something amazing with them for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you know, last week at the end of chapter 13, we ended kind of on a passage that talks about um, Jesus being in his own hometown um, and speaking in his old hometown synagogue and doing a few miracles while he was there. And the people that he grew up with um, heard him and recognized that he had wisdom that they didn't know where it came from, and also witnessed some miraculous things that he did. Not many, but a few things. And rather than to be like, wow, this is the guy. This is the one that we've been looking for for our whole lives. It says that they were offended. They were offended by the fact that Jesus was there speaking in this way and doing these miraculous things. And, um, you know, they saw, they saw Jesus and they were like, well, I hear the words and he has wisdom that we don't understand and we don't know where he got it from. And he's done some pretty miraculous things that we've witnessed with our own eyes. But this is Jesus. We've known Jesus since he was little. Isn't he Joseph's son? Isn't he Mary's son? Aren't these his brothers? Aren't those his sisters? Aren't these his nieces and nephews running around? It's Jesus. Um, and they couldn't hear from him. And you remember that last week I talked about the fact that one of the reasons I believe that they were unable to hear is because they were just so familiar with him that they couldn't hear anything other than what they've always thought. Like, well, this is Jesus. There's nothing new that we can learn from Jesus. We've known this forever. And I think that the danger and for us in that is, is for many of us who have read the word over and over and we've come to church a lot and we've heard teachings and we begin to say, ah, oh, there's nothing new I can learn. There's nothing here that I haven't heard a million times. And we begin to close off our ears. Today, we're in chapter 14. Now, chapter 14 is two miraculous accounts that you probably have heard before. The feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And so when I say that, um, I know that some of you are like, oh, you know, I mean, what else is there? I've heard the feeding of the 5,000. I've heard every teaching on Jesus walking on the water. And already you're starting to think about biscuits and gravy. <laughs> I would encourage you, please, to listen with ears to hear. Because there might be something that you hear today and um, that you've not heard before that might speak to you, that if you close off your ears and just start thinking about lunch or whatever else you've got going on today, that you might just miss something that the Lord wants to say to you today. So with that being said, let's jump in here. 14, verse 1, at the time, at that time, again, at that time means at the time that at, when Jesus is doing these things and teaching these people and going from place to place, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. 
quick, quick kind of historical review. If you're not too familiar, there's more than one Herod in the Bible. In fact, there were several, and they're all kind of in one family line. Herod the Great was the first one. Herod the Great named himself Herod the Great. He gave himself that title. He was like, I'm Herod, I'm the Great, call me that. Um, he was 4'11". And I'm not saying there's anything wrong if you're short. Cesar spoke up right away at the beginning in the first lesson, message. I'm not saying that. All I'm saying was that this man, Herod, gave himself the title Herod the Great. If you have to give yourself the title the Great, guess what? You ain't. That's like if you claim to be wise, you are probably a fool. Wisdom is something that someone else recognizes. You, someone else has to recognize the Great in you. So don't, don't call yourself the Great. But this man did, Herod the Great. Now, he was actually very smart and was a genius architect. And a lot of his structures still are around in some form, even today. This Herod, however, was his son, Herod Antipas. He had several sons. This is one of them. It calls him a tetrarch, which means that when Herod the Great died, he divided up, or before he died, he had divided up his kingdom to be left to his sons up in quarters. So tetrarch means um, a quarter of meaning that he was the ruler of a quarter of his father's kingdom. Although you understand, Rome was in charge, and so he was kind of put in place or allowed to be a Jewish king in place under Roman rule. Everybody got it? So Herod the Great, that was the Herod who was the guy in charge, the king that was in charge when Jesus was born and and instructed all of the male children two years uh, or younger to be killed because he was afraid of the prophecy of a king that would be born. Um, this is his son, one of his sons, Herod Antipas, now alive um, when Jesus is alive. Now he hears about this guy, Jesus, and all these amazing things that are going on, the, the healings that he's doing and the miracles and the teachings that he's giving and the big crowds that are coming out to hear him. And he says, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. Now, it's uh, kind of silly to think that on his part because many people could come before him and say, Um, well, I saw Jesus and John the Baptist together at the same time over there. So how could one be the other risen from the dead? Um, It's not like Clark Kent and Superman, right? Both of those guys existed at the same time, but you never saw one with the other. It's not like that. This is John the Baptist and Jesus were alive at the same time. But, But there's something driving Herod to think, oh, this is John risen from the dead. It says that, uh, and therefore, this is verse two, and therefore these powers are at work in him. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Matthew's being very kind right here in this sense. He's saying that Herod Antipas put John in prison because of his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. But what actually had happened was that Herod Antipas was married to somebody else, a a princess from another country that they had kind of married them to try and create an allegiance. Um, But at some point, Herod Antipas goes to visit his brother Philip in Rome. And while he's there, he meets his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And he starts thinking, "Mm, she's fine. Now, at the same time, Herodias is looking at Herod Antipas and thinking that he's all right, too. And so the two of them contrive a plan to get together. So Herod convinces Herodias, uh, Antipas, uh, (laughs) Herod Antipas convinces 
Herodias to leave Philip and come with him to um, Jerusalem where he is um, and be his wife, which is um, completely wrong because her husband Philip is still alive. So John the Baptist comes up into the scene and he, he goes to them and he says, what you've done marrying your brother's wife while your brother's still alive is absolutely wrong. And he calls them out and he calls them out in front of everybody. And this makes them both very mad. It boils the blood of Herodias because she doesn't, she's embarrassed and she doesn't want to be called out. It also makes Herod Antipas angry. It says that he wanted to kill him. But he was afraid of the people because the people loved John the Baptist. So what he did was he put him into prison. That's where we are. Um, but when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. So on Herod's birthday, he has a big celebration and he has all of the local dignitaries and leaders and all the really like top society people come to his birthday party at this um, uh, palace that he had that was built on, that his father had built on the side of the Dead Sea. Um, I, I, coincidentally, just 16 miles south of where John the Baptist did all of the baptizing on the Jordan River. Um, and so he has this big party. Now, meantime, at this party, John the Baptist is in the dungeon of this palace fortress that he lives in. In fact, they've recently excavated this uh, palace fortress, so they know where it is. And they did find these two dungeon cells in the, basically, basement dug all the way down underneath this fortress. And it was like two, it was like two dungeons, a dark, windowless, lightless hole that they would put prisoners in. So imagine John the Baptist, this guy lived outdoors his whole life, you know, under the stars, um, living off the land, calling out people um, and calling them to come and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, being outside all the time, now for the last two years, has spent his life in a dark, smelly hole, probably chained up, probably sharing the room with rats. Now for almost two years, that, that's where John the Baptist is. Well, upstairs, Herod is having this great big birthday party where he is celebrating his birthday. He's got all these people there. They're all coming to, to cheer for him and to say how great he is. Um, now, typically what would happen at the end of one of these uh, big feasts or meals is there would be some entertainment, maybe some dancers or some jugglers or something like this. Well, Herodias has got a plan. And she says to her daughter, who, by the way, isn't Antipas's daughter, but it's her daughter from Philip, to come in and to seductively dance before them, which is what she does. She comes in and she does this dance, and it says that it pleases Herod. Now, Herod says, in response to this dance, he says, um, I'll give you anything you ask. In another gospel, it says, up to half of my kingdom. And, and, and what an offer that he makes her. You know, he's trying to impress everybody in the room. He's got all these dignitaries and everything. He's trying to impress them. So it says that, therefore, with a promise and with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. He just said, I'll give you half my kingdom, up to that. And she says, I want a prisoner's head on a plate. Ew. <laughs> That's gross, but that's what her mother wanted. See, Herodias had said to her, I want to once and for all silence the voice of this guy that's down in the basement. So you tell Herod that you want John the Baptist's head on a plate. 
So she goes to him and she says that's what she wants. Now, he's made this oath and promise in front of all these people that he's trying to impress, trying to look like a big man by even making the offer. And so it says, and the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. He is the king. He certainly could have said, no, no, I, don't. You know, I was just joking about that whole half the kingdom thing and, and, and anything you want. You know, don't you want something else? How about some flowers or some jewelry? No, he could have done any of that. But in his mind, he would have been embarrassed in front of all of these rooms that he wasn't holding up his word to say, I'll give you whatever you want. And so he succumbs to the peer pressure of the room and he does something that he's sorry about. It says that he was sorry in the other gospels. It says that he did not want to execute John, but he does it anyway because he gives into the peer pressure. What, what is a horrible thing he knows is the wrong thing to do. He does it anyway because he's afraid of what people might think. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Have you ever done anything because you were afraid of what somebody might think if you didn't do it? Have you ever acted in a way that was driven by peer pressure? We talk about peer pressure with kids a lot, but isn't peer pressure like across the board? Do you guys ever feel peer pressure? Have you ever done? There was one commentator that said that rather than commit perjury, he committed murder because that made more logical sense to him. What, seems, what, what is illogical will seem logical under the pressure of, of, of fear of what other people think of you or might say about you. Well, here's the thing. You can't control that. You can't control what other people think about you. You can't control what other people say about you. You know, some people are going to think you're weird and crazy. We had a baptism yesterday at the beach. It was crowded. You guys, some of you were there. It was crowded, right? There were a lot of people there. And there were some people who were there cheering us on. And there were some people who were looking at us like, what are those weirdos over there doing in the group, dunking people under the water? And I think that God has designed baptism in that way. It's not a normal thing you see at the beach, you know, a bunch of people watching two other people dunk someone under the water and coming up and everyone cheers and yells. That, you don't see that every day. It's very specific. And so for people to see that, and they might have thought that we were crazy, maybe. They might have thought, I wonder what that's about. It's a public witness. That's why we do it at the beach. That's why we go to the beach, so people can see us and they can think, I wonder what that's about. Did you know that actually two people got baptized yesterday that saw us doing it on the beach? But they were children, as a matter of fact. And they came over and they said, we saw these other people get baptized um, and we want to do it too. And so I sat with them and I talked to them about what it means to be baptized and, you know, about Jesus dying for them. And I, and I asked them, you know, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your savior? And do you believe that he died on the cross for your sins? And they said, yes, we do. And yes, we have. I said, let's go. Here's water. There's no reason why we shouldn't baptize you. No six-week class, just right there. That's why we do that. I just got chills thinking about it again. It was pretty cool. <clears throat> so Herod, under the pressure of his peers and the people that were watching him, um, did what was illogical and what he didn't want to do and what we find out causes him great fear and great guilt 
He went and sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Ugh. I just see someone walking up with this big head on a platter. And when you read the story, it seems kind of tragic, doesn't it? You know, there's John, like he's been in prison for two years in a hole with no fresh air and no sunlight, no light at all probably, chained up. And to top it all off, someone comes down and cuts off his head. Is that tragic? Is it? With one stroke of that sword, John is free. He was in prison and in chains for the last two years. But with one stroke of the sword, John is free in paradise forever for that moment on. No longer having to deal with the darkness. No longer having to deal with the stinky stale air. No longer having to deal with the chains. No longer having to deal with the, deal with the daily temptation to sin, which is what we all deal with every single day. For the believer, you know what? That death is that sweet release from the temptation of daily sin, isn't it? It is the, the vehicle that ushers us right into the presence of the Lord and paradise forever. Man. Ironically, Herod is the one who's still in chains in this story. You see, he is the one who hears about Jesus and he says, this is John the Baptist who has been risen from the dead because I cut off his head. It says in another gospel, this is John the Baptist whose head I cut off. He's feeling so guilty, he's chained up. Do you know Herod Antipas was a Sadducee? Do you know that? Do you know what Sadducee means? It means they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. No resurrection. That's why... They're sad, you see. I know some of you have heard that, but some of you haven't, so that'll help you remember. He was sad, you see. No. However, even though that is what he believed or claimed to believe, he's now saying, this is John the Baptist who has been raised from the dead. Why? Because he's afraid. He feels guilty. His fear is greater than his faith in this situation right here. The fear of what he believes to be true is greater than what he claimed he believed in. Fear is over faith. Well, it has to be the other way, doesn't it? Faith over fear. We're going to learn about that more as we go along. <clears throat> so then the disciples came and they took away his body and they buried it. And when, they told, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Like maybe Jesus was sad. Maybe it was his cousin. So maybe he had these human emotions that make him feel sad about his cousin being beheaded and dead. But I don't know. Jesus out of anybody would understand the freedom that he just received from being released from prison and into paradise. So I'm not sure that Jesus went away sad. I think he actually, in the other gospel, it says the disciples had just come back from going out and ministering. He said, look, come away and let's get away and rest. And I think the going away by himself here isn't for his sake, but it is for the sake of his disciples who need some rest. It says, but when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the city. So 
here you go. You've got Jesus saying um, to his disciples, let's get out of here. I'm going to go. Let's get some rest. They get in a boat, and they start sailing to another part. This is on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 15 miles long by 7 miles wide. From the hills that go around it, you can see the entire thing. They see Jesus getting on a boat and heading in another direction. And they're like, come on, everybody, let's go. We can cut him off. We can see that he's going to this town. So let's go and we'll walk there ahead of him and we'll get there before he does. And off they go. And I imagine right here, there's this little boy at home and he hears that the master is going to be in the next town over and he runs out the door. And as he's going out, his mother says, hey, hey, where are you going? And he says, the master is in the next town over and I'm going to hear him. And she says, don't forget your lunch. (laughs) And he says, what is it? And she says, it's five loaves and two fishes. Again, (laughs) fine. And his mom says, don't worry, you're going to thank me later. Now, if you don't know where I'm going, hold on. (laughs) So it says that when Jesus... um, When Jesus went out, so he arrives, it says, when he went out, he saw a great multitude and he said, man, can I just get a break for five seconds for myself? (laughs) Is that not in your version? (laughs) No, he says, it says here, he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Jesus really is looking for some rest for him and for his disciples. He comes out and he sees this great multitude, which by the way, we're going to learn is probably around 12,000 people who have followed him there. And he comes out and he sees them. And rather than being discouraged that he doesn't get the rest that he was looking for, it says that he sees the crowd and he has compassion on them. The word compassion there, it means that something inside him was stirred to the point where he says, I don't need the rest. I need to be about these people. Now, we know from the other Gospels as well, it says here it just says that he healed their sick. But from the other two Gospels, it says that he preached the kingdom of heaven to them all day. So he went out and he said, look, I see that they are, Mark says, a multitude of sheep who are scattered without a shepherd. He saw and had compassion on their greatest need. Yes, they were sick. Yes, they needed healing. But he said what they need more is the good shepherd. They need to know about the kingdom of heaven. They need the gospel. And that's what Jesus was about all day long. He also healed them because he loves them. But he was about teaching them his word, the truth. That's what he did all day. And they stayed for it. It says that when evening had come, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitude away that they may go into the wilderness, to the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. How would you like to be a disciple right there? You're saying, Jesus, um, you need to send everybody away so they can go into the villages and buy food. And he says, now you do it. And you're like, Just something interesting to note right here. They both see the same thing, same problem, but they both see it in different ways. The disciples saw a burden. We can't feed all these people. You've got to send them away. Jesus saw the same group of people, and he saw an opportunity. Not just an opportunity to feed them, but to do something so great that I can't wait to tell you, but we're not there yet. Well, the disciples are like, Philip comes up to him and he says, 
well, Jesus, even if we went into the village, we only have $200 to buy bread, and that's not nearly enough for all these people. So they fan out into the crowd. And this isn't in here. It's in the other Gospels, but you can read them for yourselves later. But trust me, it says this. And then Philip, uh, excuse me, Andrew comes across a small boy who brought his lunch to this on the advice of his mother, I believe. That's not in anywhere, but that's what I think happened. Andrew brings that boy to Jesus because that's what Andrew does. Andrew brings people to Jesus. We see it over and over and over again. Andrew comes to Jesus with this small boy and he says, Jesus, here, this boy has five loaves and two fish. Now, just so you know, the fish and loaves for this boy's lunch were a fish, a two fish this big, salted and um, dried, and five loaves. They were barley loaves, again, about the size of a Twinkie, okay? Five of those. That's it. That was lunch for a small boy, right? And that's what Jesus took. Now, this is incredible. I love the fact that it was a boy who brought it to him because if it were an adult and they heard an announcement and they were like, listen, we don't have any food for any of you. Um, so does anyone have any food that they want to share? And you'd be sitting there maybe, and you're thinking, well, I've got five small loaves and two fish that are in my lunch, but how's that possibly going to put a dent into the need of 12,000 people? This boy said, I've got five loaves and two fish. Here, take all of it and do with it whatever you think you can do. There was nothing holding that kid back. He didn't sit there and say, it's not enough. It could never help. I'm not going to offer. He just said, this is what I have. Take it. It's a little. It's one lunch. It's my lunch. That's it. Take it. And Jesus took it and did something incredible with it. If it were an adult, I think we would have been like, not that we would be like, oh, I'm not sharing. But rather like, what could possibly be done with five loaves and two fish for 12,000 people? How could that even help? And so maybe you're sitting here and thinking, I don't really have anything to offer God to use. I've got nothing. I can't sing. I'm not a good speaker. I'm afraid of people. I'm not even physically well. I don't know that much about the Bible. I don't have anything to offer you, God. And God says, really, you don't have anything? You don't have five loaves and two fish? That you can say, I don't have much, but here, this is what I have. Take all of it. I don't have any talents, but I have a little bit of time. I am not good at anything but talking. Well, here, can you talk to somebody? Can you pray with somebody? See what he wants to do with the little tiny bit that you have to offer and say, just here, take it all. Take all. It's not much, but take it all. And he's like, that's all I needed to know. Let me just have that little bit. Jesus, uh, they say, here, we only have five loaves and two fish, as if, you know, they brought it. He said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven. He blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples began, uh, gave to the multitudes. And they ate and were filled, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. All right, what did that look like? I mean, Jesus takes these like loaves of fish, he's just like, hang on a second. How did that work? I don't know. I don't know. But this, this is what I see is he took basically nothing 
and created everything that was needed. You understand? He didn't, they had 12 baskets of leftovers after everyone was full. The word full is glutted. That means today after the potluck, and you're like, oh, I can't eat another biscuit. That's how full they were. They were like, people were coming around going, oh, there's more. And they're like, no, no. And they're undoing their tunics and they're putting their hand down there like, I just need to sit here for, you know. They were filled to the point where they couldn't eat. Do you know, actually, I just learned this. This is really interesting. A Jewish meal was there had to be enough for everyone to be filled and there had to be leftovers. That was the sign of a really good meal to the Jews. Everyone was filled and there were leftovers. That's this. Everyone was filled and there were leftovers. 12 baskets of leftovers. You understand? That's way more than what they started with. Jesus had five loaves and two fish, and he ends up with 12 times at least that amount left over after 12,000 people have eaten to their fill. The reason why this strikes me, other than that's a pretty cool thing, that's a pretty cool miracle, isn't it just, it isn't just a pretty cool miracle. It is Jesus displaying absolute divine power using the exact same power that Jesus created the universe and everything in it, he is now using that same power because he took nothing and created everything that they needed in this situation. That is divine creation power that's on display for them right there. Now you may say, oh, well, he didn't start with nothing. I mean, he had five loaves and two fish. Come on. Don't give me that argument. That was nothing. You don't have five loaves and two fish and feed 12,000 people and have 12 baskets of leftovers. That was nothing to something. That's a Greek word, ex nihilo, something from nothing. Incidentally, how many baskets were left over? How many disciples were there? What? Coincidence? In addition to providing what everybody in the crowd needed, in addition to providing that to their full, he then also provides for a basket of food for each disciple who had been serving all day to now take that and go on their way. When they left the, that night, when they're sitting around the fire and they've each got a basket of bread and fish and they're going away. And I mean, honestly, if Jesus, how good was that meal? I mean, on the average, you know, smoky, salty fish and bread, eh, but... This is like Jesus made it with his own hands. It's the best bread, the best fish you've ever eaten. And you're like, I can't even believe this. And what he does is he provides for the entire crowd and then in turn provides for each one of his disciples their own basket to take with them. Is he the God that provides? Amen. He certainly is. That's it. They ate until they were full. This, this miracle, this display of divine creation power so impacted the disciples that it is the only miracle recorded in four, all four Gospels except the other uniquely divine miracle, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Just those two are in all four Gospels. They were so blown away by what he did here that they 
All four recorded it in the Gospels, and only that one and the resurrection are in all four Gospels. And isn't that cool? The, the, the display of divine power to create and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead after dying on the cross for your sins. Man, those are some pretty impressive bookends right there. Well, it says in verse 21, now that those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So 5,000 men, let's just say a woman for every man and a child. And so that's where we're coming up with the 12,000 in case you're wondering, was it nine? Was it 11? Was it 14? I don't know. But you know, it was more than five. It had to be, it could have been 5,000 and four I suppose, if you want to be strict, 5,000 men, two women, and two children. So 5,004, but I think it was 12,000 around there. Immediately, it says in verse 22, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. In John's gospel, it says that the multitudes, after they were filled after this meal, they wanted to take Jesus and make him be king. They were like, this is it. This guy healed us. He gave us food. We want him to be the king because he's going to provide everything that we want. Let's make him king. And Jesus says to his disciples, guys, get in the boat and go and get out of here. And what is he doing in that moment? Right? Jesus isn't afraid that he can't handle the multitudes. Clearly, it says that he stayed and sent them away. But he knows that the temptation of the disciples to be wrapped up in the fervor of the crowd to make Jesus the king will be maybe too much for them to take. They already have a problem with this because they've already said to him on multiple occasions, you know, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your left hand and your right? And like, who's going to be the greatest? And they're still thinking that he's going to come into a earthly kingly role. And so when Jesus sees that the crowd is like, let's make him king. He's like, guys, get out of here. This is going to be too hard for you to resist. You are going to get wrapped up in the fervor of the crowd and you will want to go along with them and make me king. I can handle the crowd. You guys can't. Get out of here. And what we're going to find out is he puts them in a boat and sends them out into the Sea of Galilee for another really hard lesson that they're going to have to learn, which he knows is coming. And he says, being in a storm within my will is greater than being engulfed by the will of the crowd. And so he puts them in a boat and he sends them out. And then he goes and he sends the crowds home. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. What did Jesus pray for? Do you think? Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the food we had today. What do you think Jesus prayed for? Well, many things probably. We know in the garden, right before his, his crucifixion, he prays and says, Lord, if there be any way for this cup to pass before me, please let it be so. But not my will, but your will. But what was he praying here? Do you know in Romans, it says that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for you. He's interceding for you. He's sitting next to the Father in heaven, and he's praying for you. I think in this moment right here, he's praying for his disciples because he knows what they're about to go through. Father, I pray that even in the storm that they are about to hit, that you would, that you would strengthen them in their faith so that they don't falter. 
How does it make you feel to know that Jesus is praying for you by name? By name. He knows you better than you know you. He knows you before you were conceived. And he prays for you. Man. That's kind of humbling, isn't it? Whenever you start thinking you're all that (laughs) and a bag of chips, you're neither. Twenty-four says, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. He's gonna say it's the fourth watch. The fourth watch. It's between three AM and six AM. That's the fourth watch. They have been battling the winds in this boat for hours. And they've made three and a half miles distance because the waves are just banging into the boat and they're just, they got the sail down, they're rowing and they're rowing and they're rowing. And at some point, don't you think that they must have thought to themselves and even said to one another, where's Jesus? Why would he leave us in the middle of this storm? Doesn't he care that we're out here? I mean, certainly he could do something. Where is Jesus in all of this? And I think they begin to say, you know, what is going on here? (laughs) Maybe that's you as well. Maybe you found yourself in the middle of the storm. Whatever that is, it's a bad relationship, a bad job. You're just sad. You're depressed. Um, You're struggling. Whatever it is, and you start thinking, where is Jesus? Why has he left me in the middle of this storm? Well, as they're going to find out, and as we need to remember, he's never leaving us. But maybe he's not coming in the way you expect him to come. Maybe he's not showing up at the time that you expect. And we were like, Jesus, you know, I'm in a storm, so if you could show up now and in this way, that would be fantastic. Usually he doesn't do it the way I want him to do it. I I mean, maybe never. Maybe never he operates according to my plan. I'm like, um, did, you, did, did you not get my memo? Does storm come this way? He does show up. He does save them, but not in any way or at any time that they thought that he would come. And yet, there they are. And it says that Jesus looked down and he saw them out there battling the storm and battling the storm. And so it says, now on the fourth watch, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. Well, I guarantee that they did not expect to see Jesus walking out onto the water to meet them on their boat. And what did that look like anyway? That would be so weird, wouldn't it? Just like, like, how does Jesus walk on a very windy, wavy sea? Is it just like, you know, he's just like, or does, do they just part and he just walks? I think it's like that. Don't you think it just like smooths right out for him and out he goes? I don't know. But they're out there, and it says that he began to walk to them and see. Do you know in Mark's gospel, it says that he nearly passed right by them? Do you know why? Because they're like, oh, we're going to die. Row, row. And here comes Jesus. like, (laughs) he nearly walks by the boat. They don't see him because they're so wrapped up in the storm that they're in. They don't see their salvation coming right at them. He's walking along. You know why? Because they didn't expect that, did they? That was not how they expected Jesus to show up in their life. Jesus does not do it like I expect him to do it. Almost ever. He strolls out on the surface of the water. 
nearly passing them by. Why did he do that? Why do you think Jesus came? He could have gotten out there and he could have, he could have floated out. He could have had a golden eagle drop him and he could have just appeared, I think. Why did he come out walking on the water? I think part of it is this. I think what Jesus was telling them was the thing that is causing you the most fear is just a pathway for me to get to you. It's just the path on which I walk. The thing that's scariest to you is nothing to me. So that when I get to you, you know that you can put your faith in me and your, not your fear in the thing around you. I just walked across the surface of the water, the thing that was frightening you the most. Now that was what was frightening them the most. Now we see the next thing that is very frightening to them. It says that when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. It's very funny. Cried out for fear is a word that means shrieked like a little girl. You've got these like hardy fishermen who have been in rough waters on board and they're out there and they're rowing and they see something like, ah! and they're, I imagine they're like hugging each other and like, you know, pushing Peter forward, you know, go, go, you go. Now here's where you see the compassion of Jesus right here because he hears them screaming and it says immediately he spoke to them. To try to comfort him, says, be of good cheer, it is me. Don't be afraid. Jesus hears the fear. He sees that they're afraid. They're clinging to one another. They're screaming. Uh, they're battling the storm. And he comes, he sees that they're afraid of him. And, they say, and he says, it's me, Jesus, don't be afraid. Now Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it was you, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter, like, I'm sure they've all pushed Peter to the front of the boat. You go, you, you. He's like, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come out on the water. Now, I honestly think that Peter was kind of thinking that Jesus would say, that's not necessary, Peter. I'll just come to you. And yet he turns around and Jesus says, come. And I think Peter was like, dang. <laughs> but he does it. Do you see what he does? He steps out of the boat. How much faith does it take to step from a dry, safe boat, you know, sort of, onto the raging sea, the thing that is there to basically destroy you? How much faith does it take to take a step out into that water? And Peter does it. This is like Peter is like way up here and way down here, just back and forth all the time. Now, Peter evens out a little bit later on, but right now he is just like, he's like super high and super low. It's, uh, sometimes don't you feel like that? You're like, some days you're just like, yeah, Jesus. And other days you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And Peter steps out of the boat. But, oh, and he began to walk on the water. It says that he walked on the water to go to Jesus. That is so cool. Man, I can't even imagine that. You're stepping down onto the water and all of a sudden it feels kind of firm and you're like, hmm, hmm, all right, all right, and off you go. And here's the thing. I want you to see this. This is really important. Jesus is walking on the water under his own power because he's Jesus. Peter steps out of the boat and begins to walk on water, not because of his own power, but because of the power of Jesus in him. You see the song that we just sang, but not I, but Christ in me. 
Jesus says, I want you to live a life of holiness, but you can't do it without me. I said, I'm going to be ready. It's going to happen one day. He says, you can't live the life I've called you to live without my Holy Spirit, so I'm going to give you that power. And this is what he says. Peter isn't doing anything under his own power other than he steps out of the boat, but he is walking on the water because of the power of Christ in him at that moment. Because look what happens It says, but when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out saying, Lord, save me. So Peter, he gets out, he's going along. He's looking at Jesus. He's like, I can't believe we're walking on water. And then he starts to look at the waves to the left and the right, and he begins to sink. The moment Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and puts it on the problem, he starts to sink. Immediately, when he no longer has that connection to Christ, and now he is consumed by him, and what, suddenly he sees the waves, and he's like, what am I doing? I can't walk on water. And he starts to sink immediately. Now, Peter does something amazing that we all need to take note of, though, right here. This says, but, but um, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. What does he do? What does he do? cries out to the Lord. When does he do it? When when he's sinking? At the beginning. He begins to sink and cries out. What Peter doesn't do is realize he's sinking and just say, I just need to tread water faster. Let me just exhaust all my own efforts. He doesn't wait. He doesn't try everything that he knows how to do. It says he began to sink. He called out, Lord, save me. As soon as he realized he was sinking, he called out, Lord, save me. Man, do we just don't do that. We try everything in our power to work it all out. I feel like I should be able to do something for myself. And God says, "Mm, why? I'm here. Why do you even want to try? I'm here. Peter realizes that he just can't do it. He calls out. Jesus reaches out. He says, Jesus, he says, save me. And immediately, I love that, don't you? Jesus reaches out. He's just like, sorry, I'm going to let you, uh, I'm going to let you get down to your like here. So you realize you got to keep your eyes on me and then I'm going to pull you up. No, it says immediately. He pulls them out of the water. You know what's so cool about this? I just realized this this week. Is the moment that Jesus reaches down and pulls Peter out of the water, he is closer to Jesus in that moment than when he was simply walking in faith. Sometimes and often, we are only that close to Jesus when we... Oh, that was creepy. Sorry. (laughs) My uh, microphone cable just pulled on my shoulder and it felt like someone was pulling me. I was like, ah! Holy cow. Sorry, was I not supposed to say that? Oh, there we go. Sometimes we will be closer to Jesus as he's pulling us out of a problem than when we are just walking in faith. Not all the time, but sometimes that's what it takes to get us that close to Jesus. Thankfully, he's ready He's waiting. He wants to reach down and grab you and pull you in close. 
We just, this is a lesson that we need to learn from Peter in this situation. However, look at it. It says in verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and, and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? Two important questions he says there, or two statements. Oh, you of little faith. We have know this from the past. Oh, you of little faith, when Jesus says it to his disciples especially, it, it means, oh, you who have grown, become dull to the hearing of my voice. And then he says, why do you doubt? The, in Greek, why do you doubt means, um, why are you considering two positions? He's saying, Peter, you are fractured in your position right now. You're looking at me, but you're looking at the waves. You're looking at me, you're looking at the waves. That's why you're sinking. He says, why are you fractured, Peter? Cast your eyes on me. Keep them on me. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? <laughs> why are you shifting between two positions? <sighs> when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus steps into their boat, and the wind stops. The people in the boat, the disciples come and they fall down at his feet in the boat and they worship him saying, truly you are the son of God. I see tremendous growth in the disciples in this moment. You know why? Because the first time they were in a stormy boat and Jesus got up and he said, peace be still and the waters and the rains and everything calmed down. They said, who is this guy that even the wind and waves, be, uh, uh, whatever, <laughs> obey him. In this moment now, essentially the same thing has happened. He's calmed the sea just by stepping in the boat and they fall down and worship him and they say, truly you are the son of God. You are the holy one. That's tremendous growth in their walk, isn't it? Their faith, they've gone from saying, who is this guy? To saying, we know who you are and we worship you. <coughs> now, in Mark's gospel, it says that the moment that happened, not only did the waves cease, but it says immediately they were at the shore where they were going. Immediately at the shore. Jesus steps in, they worship him, and immediately they are at the shore, saved from the sea. How did that happen? What's that about? I mean, did all of us, did the, like, the whole world just tilt and they just went, shh? Now, here's the thing, and this is a big concept here. Jesus says, and it says in the, in, in the other gospel, they willingly accepted him into their boat. The storm ceased, and they were immediately on the shore. Here's the big concept. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you willingly accept him into your boat, you are immediately saved. You don't work towards it. You don't add to it. You can't change it at that point. You are immediately saved. Do you know that when you accept Christ as your Savior, your eternal life starts at that moment? You don't wait until you die. It's already started. Can't add to it. Do you know, I think I said this last week, or maybe it was the youth group, you can't do anything to make God love you more. You can't do anything to make him love you less either. 
When you willingly accept Jesus Christ into your boat, your sins are forgiven. Your eternal life starts immediately. You are saved immediately. It's not a process. You're not like, well, I'm three quarters saved, so I hope I live a little bit longer. It's not layaway. <laughs> you guys remember layaway? Like you could say, I want to buy this. Okay, I don't know. It was a long time ago. It's immediate. It happens. It's not just immediate. It's complete. Completed. Well, when they had crossed over, they came to land of Gennesaret. And when the men at that place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding regions, and they brought to him all who were sick and begged him that he might only touch them, the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. We've seen Jesus operate in this way. The woman with the issue of blood thought all I had to do was touch his garment, and she did, and he healed her through that. And here he allows this process to be used in the same way. These people were brought to him. They had faith that he could heal them, and when they touched his, his garment, they were healed. I just think there's a, a wonderful picture of compassion that Jesus says, I have compassion on those who need help, and he helped them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for this day, for this morning, for this opportunity to be in your word. Lord, I just thank you for these two amazing miracles that you show us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that as we go out of this place today, that we would be reminded that you only need a little and not even that. You require nothing of us, Lord, but, but we have only a little to offer. So, Lord, I pray that we remember that. Lord, I pray that we would remember in the storm to call out to you at the beginning. Lord, that we would not be concerned if you're not showing up in the way that we think or in the time that we expect you to, Lord, but trust that you are there. Lord, I thank you that you're in heaven praying for us, interceding for us. Thank you, Jesus. I'm blown away that you know my name. Lord, that you pray for me by name to the Father. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you that your salvation was immediate and complete. Lord, that I don't have to work toward it or earn it. Lord, I know I can't. I never will be able to. Lord, but you did it all. You paid it all. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray for anybody here that is struggling with the concept of salvation or who Jesus is, Lord, that you would break into their very uh, heart right now, Lord, and draw them in that they might realize that they must and they can accept your forgiveness and seal their, their destiny in heaven, Lord. I pray for that, Lord. Lord, I, I pray for anyone here who is struggling with doubt, struggling with fear, Lord, that they would fix their eyes on you, Lord, and trust in you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.